Getting closer to the spring game, scoop, duck, and high five. My name's Matt Bagley, talking with Justin Hopkins. Uh, this is going to be a really fun one. When I was a kid, one of my favorite memories as a Duck fan was watching the Fiesta Bowl. Joey Harrington leading the Ducks to that big win over Colorado, and Mike Bellotti patrolling the sidelines. One of my all-time favorite college football coaches, one of the greatest coaches in the history of Oregon football, and we've had him on the pod before. We'll get him on the pod today, Mike Bellotti. Stay tuned for that. And Jared Denning, Scoop Duck beat reporter, joining us as well a little bit later here. But we got a lot of news to go over, and uh, I, I think you and I can, can tackle the, the bulk of that ourselves. Let, let's start with the big story. The folks in Seattle don't know how to handle this. There's a lot of panicking and hair pulling. Uh, but Josh Connerly. Uh, a super mega hyped lineman out of the state of Washington. Guess where he committed to? I think I know. I think I know the answer to this one. <laughs> He's a duck. Hey, um, did you did you know this was coming? Well, I mean, I you know obviously I talked about it on the site, um, and I won't pretend you know to you know that hey yeah I knew all along. That's not the case. I, I I think I feel as though I portrayed this story pretty accurately. I think that you know three you know two three four weeks ago I think he was USC's to lose and and you know I think USC when Mario Cristobal had left really kind of prioritized him. I know uh, Lincoln Riley you know identified him as somebody that they'd like to really sign they had a head start on um you know dan lanning and adrian clam and those guys uh, you know i think that you know usc was in a really good spot for a long time for connor lee but that said i think the way that oregon closed in the last two weeks specifically uh you know allowed the ducks to kind of end up as they did by you know getting his commitment um it's it's massive i mean it's it's it not just because of the player that josh connerly is but you know you you know duck fans hate the huskies you just took their top player out of the state that you know really wasn't paying much attention to the huskies there at the end but it still is a big sting for them uh, and then uh, you know for usc who's you know we've we're seeing these this rivalry this recruiting rivalry kind of you know bud right in front of our eyes oregon's been able to take advantage of clay helton at being at usc but now lincoln riley's there uh and doing a much better job recruiting than clay helton was so mm-hmm. um you know this is a guy that usc very much wanted very much thought that they were going to get and you know usc or excuse me oregon kind of came in in the in the final hours and was able to uh you know get his commitment and it's big it's just it's really big for a lot of reasons yeah yeah and and that's what i keep hearing a, a really highly touted prospect. You you keep using the word big. Washington wanted him. USC wanted him. That's big. Uh, how big is Josh Connerly in his impact on the field? Yeah, you know that's that's the uh, best part about it, right? Uh, it, it now, I wouldn't say this was always the case, but with the subtractions, you know, through the transfer portal in the last couple of weeks for Oregon, lost a couple of offensive linemen. It seems as though from most of the practice reports and, uh, you know, from Rob Mosley, from media that's been present, uh, you know, that Oregon's a little banged up on the offensive line here in the spring. He will not be available this spring. He will not be able to come in and finish and and, and do the spring game or anything like that. But he is a class of 2022, which means that he'll be able to get in there. uh, You know, he'll be able to enroll uh, June when he can enroll for school, get in there and start working with the strength and conditioning program. Uh, and he'll be available this fall for Oregon to utilize as they please. Does that mean he starts? Does that mean he plays? Does that mean he, you know, he'll come in behind other guys on the depth chart, obviously, but can he make his way up? Uh, so now you have another body, a really big body, uh, which to me wasn't necessarily always a position of need, but has seemingly kind of become more so uh, in the last three to four weeks. Yeah, yeah. No, there have been a lot of transfers. Now that you mention it, um, I, I've heard some some criticism, and and we've talked about this before. You know, the idea of negative criticism surrounding Oregon uh, with with Mario Cristobal. I don't think money was ever thrown out there as the negative criticism, but I have read that from Seattle and from LA. 
do, do you buy into that? Do you buy into the idea that that money was a factor for Josh Connerly? I, you know, the way I see it uh, in this particular recruitment is I think that, you know, I think that in the day and age of, of NIL, which we're now in, uh, a guy that's the profile of Josh Connerly is more than likely going to be set up with an NIL deal um, by somebody. Yeah. You know, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, here's what I think. I don't, I don't think Oregon was able to get him for free. I think they had to play the game. But I don't think that this became all about money for him. I think that, you know, in the end, he felt more comfortable with Coach Adrian Clem and his assistant, Vianne uh, Talamivo. Uh, I think that was a big part of this recruitment. I think Oregon had to be competitive with USC, but I don't think they had to outbid USC, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, Um, and that's kind of where I am, too. Like, we've seen, and it's, it's in its infancy stages still, NIL, but we've seen pretty much every major D1 school everywhere in America, if you've got like a star quarterback or you've got a five-star guy like him, I, I think they can get a good NIL deal. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I guess to compare what I'm saying with another recruitment, I think uh, in the recruitment of Nico in Tennessee, they had to outbid everybody to get him, if that makes sense. I think NIL was a top priority there with that recruitment and I think all things being equal let's say that you know Oregon and Tennessee offer the same amount of money or whatever I would wager that he probably would have gone to Oregon but in my opinion Tennessee made a offer or or helped secure an offer that was you know basically buying him and that's you know that's that can happen in NIL and I think it, it can also happen in the fact that some kids like Josh Connerly might want um, NIL to be part of it, but right. not all of it. Right. If that makes sense. And I think that's how this recruitment played out. Uh, I, they, they will all be different. I don't think there's any blanket way to handle this. It's just going to come down to, you know, how the, how the family views this, how the recruit views that. Um, and just, you know, how certain schools decide to interact as well. Yeah. And he's not the only commit to the Ducks. Uh, I just read this one today, very recently, uh, class of 2022, a kid that I got to cover up close and personal over the last two years because I've watched him play football and play it well. Tualatin wideout Cole Prusha committed to the Ducks. Have you read about Cole, and, and what do you think his impact may be? Yeah, to me, this feels very much like a young man. And, um, you know, this is where I dip my toe in a little bit and we and we stray very carefully. Obviously, uh, you know, the COVID pandemic impacted uh, recruits, different high schools, different yeah. states differently. Oh, yeah. And the state of Oregon was hit really hard. You know, re- you know, players from the state of Oregon were hit really hard with canceled seasons, postponed seasons, shortened seasons, uh, all that stuff in the last two years. And my point with that is I think – I think Cole Prussia was maybe one of those guys that, you know, might have gotten shortchanged a little bit by that. It, it, it limited his ability for exposure. I don't think this is a young man that, you know, was robbed of having the chance to play for Alabama or anything like that. That's not how I'm, you know, portraying it. But uh, I do see that there's potential for, you know, him to be, let's just say, maybe like a lower level Pac-12 kind of guy that could have been on scholarship somewhere. He's a dynamic athlete, mm-hmm. very high IQ, uh, Gatorade player of the year. I like his versatility that he can play corner. He can play receiver. He's got good size. You know, he's around 6'3", 200 pounds. So I, I love the pickup for Oregon and the fact that, you know, essentially at what I will, I'm using finger quotes here. He's a freebie because he's a, a walk on for Oregon. Um, you know, I, I think it's a great opportunity for him to, you know, get on a good team and, and perhaps raise his profile. And, um, you know, should he stay at Oregon, get a scholarship? Uh, who knows? Lord, he could jump in the transfer portal if he's, you know, doing really well at Oregon. We never know. But I do like this pickup for Oregon and the fact that, you know, like I said, essentially they, they got him for free. Yeah. Yeah. Got him for free. And, and you talk about how he's kind of under the radar. Um, I remember going to a, a North Medford football game at Tualatin in, I believe, April of 2020. And, and the way the state of Oregon did it that year was uh, fall, um, oh, 
goodness goodness me um they uh they didn't have or no this isn't 2020 they didn't have any games in 2020 or at least in fall of 2020 because we, we still didn't have vaccines out yet and by you know january we get vaccines out and so at the end of january the uh, oregon health association said we'll let you play high school football if you you qualify all these conditions so um you had to like have no outbreaks you had to have testing uh coaches had to be vaccinated and once all those hoops were jumped through they had a season that lasted a month (laughs) like half of march half of april and that's it so i i remember north medford goes up to tualatin and i believe this was cole's sophomore year that Tualatin team doesn't get to play in a state championship that year because there isn't a state championship, but their offense was killer. He scores a, a couple touchdowns in that game, and uh, and that's one of, I think, five games they had that whole season. The next year, of course, uh, that team, 2021, uh, fall of 2021, they turned right around, and he's had really no rest no no recovery time just from spring football straight to summer ball to uh, the regular season and that team turns around and gets the state title game so it's it's a meteoric rise that happens kind of behind the scenes because it happens in Oregon and because it happens in the span of less than a year it's it's amazing to think about this kid had one major d1 offer before Oregon well, and it's, you know, let's face it, even in a perfect world, um, in a perfect world, non, non-COVID, it's hard enough to get exposure in the state of Oregon as it is. So right. That, that definitely, right. you know, made it even harder. So, yeah, I, I just I just think it's a quality pickup for Oregon, and I, and I like the fact that they did their uh, due diligence, you know, making sure that, you know, they gave him a good hard look and, and, and combed through the state really well, making sure there wasn't anybody they should uh, sign and 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 they decided that uh, adding cold pressure to the mix was was uh, very valuable. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, and, and and this is just total geekery from me. I don't even know how many of your readers care about this kind of stuff, but I love. It, it feels like there is a kind of a pipeline. I, I'm not saying that that Oregon is a very you know talented hotbed for high school football. I'm not going to say that because it's not true. But Chase Coda. And and to me, he's in a long line. There feels like there's a, a four star or a five star wideout every year now. You know, earlier in the cycle, it was Darius Clemens who could have picked the Ducks, picked Michigan instead. Um, and now you have Cole coming in. It, it, for whatever reason, a lot of young wideouts are coming through Oregon. Yeah, yeah, no, it, yeah. I don't know if it's a development thing or what, but it's it's certainly kind of a trend a little bit and. Uh, you know, I'm sure uh, Dan Landing's pretty excited to have <laughs> that kind of talent in state. No doubt. As well. Hey, so I, I told everybody right off the top we were going to have two very special guests today, and looks like one of them is getting ready. So we'll we'll get him ready, and we'll come back with you on the other side. Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi. Stay tuned. We got Mike Bellotti. Well, I'll lead you in the same way I led us in the intro, talking about him. I, I have a very fond memory as a kid growing up and watching the Fiesta Bowl and watching Joey Harrington march that Oregon team all the way down the field and into the end zone a few times and win that football game. Part of that memory is the coach patrolling the sideline. So it's always a pleasure for me personally to get to speak with him. I believe this is the third time we've had him on here before. Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi with the legendary head coach of the Oregon Ducks, Mike Bellotti. Uh, coach, before we brought you on, I was talking with Justin about the tendencies I think fans have when a coach is new to a program. We don't know him, and so we want to learn about him. And we might you know, watch an interview on television, or we might you know, check the, uh, the GoDucks.com YouTube and pour over like a press conference, right? Because we want to get to know a new coach and figure out, were they the right hire? Are they a good coach? And, and I think it's tough because as fans, we can look over all that stuff, but we're still fans. We don't really know. You're, you're a great coach. You've been a great coach. I'd, I'd love to know 
based on the interactions you've had with Coach Lanning, how do you feel about his early tenure with the Ducks? Well, like he said to me the other day, he's undefeated, so it's all good. I haven't played a game yet, not even a spring game. But uh, I like him. I respect him. I think he's obviously accomplished a lot as a 35-year-old head coach uh, at the Division One level. He has yet to accomplish something at Oregon. But what he did in helping Georgia win a national championship as the defensive coordinator was very impressive. He's an impressive recruiter. I think he's hired a great young staff, and the operable word there is young. These guys are they're, they're younger than two of my kids. And so when, <laughs> when you talked about the festival, I have fond memories of the festival, but when you talked about you being a kid watching it, it feels <laughs> just a little bit old. So I, I think coming back to Dan Lanning and who he is as a coach, I learned more about his background as a young coach and how he got into the profession and it was similar to my beginnings in that I think we sacrificed a lot to become coaches we it wasn't about money at that time it was just about what we wanted to do and that's what I see in him and I like that I feel like that's uh, that's the right kind of stuff I think also he has hired people that he's had some connections with that he's met along the way that he's he's known and seeing coach, there aren't a lot of people on the staff that he doesn't have a pretty good understanding and knowledge of who they were, where they came from. And and I like the fact too that several of these guys uh, didn't come from Alabama or Georgia. They came from smaller schools where you have to do more with less and you learn to really coach because sometimes when you have great talent, uh, it's easy to coach. You just, my guy's bigger, faster, stronger than the guy across from him. I just don't want to screw them up. But right. sometimes you're playing people that are better than you, just as good or better with a, a dominant person somewhere. And you've got to say, hey, I've got to find a way now to coach, to create opportunities for our guys to be successful. And I, I think that's the way he operates. Uh, coach, I know that there was a coach's clinic and you were able to be part of it. Um, was there, and there was a lot of presentations from the OC, the DC, different position coaches. Um, was there one that maybe jumped out to you as most impressive or one that maybe you learned a little bit more at, or what's kind of uh, your thoughts of, you know, coming from that event? Uh, I got a chance to come in and listen, listen to Kenny Dillingham, talk offense, Tosh Lupoy, talk, talk defense, and Joe Lorig talk special teams. And I, I thought they did a great job. They had the right combination of knowledge and enthusiasm. I probably, because Joe Lorick talked about some drills and the last five to 10 years of my career, I was more involved with special teams than maybe anything else, although I always had an eye and a hand in the offense. But I liked the drills. They made sense to me. They were things done at full speed, things that you can actually take and see clips that work in a game uh, and understand that's why you practice it. And I think that's really crucial uh, because uh, players get tired of just drills without seeing a purpose to those drills. Also, when you can add competition to the drill, that changes the whole demeanor, changes the whole attitude. And I know uh, Coach Lanning has uh, coaches in charge of the juice, which means the incitement, the emotion, the enthusiasm of a drill. And it might be him. It might be Tosh Lupoy jumping in there for a special teams drill and running down the field with his guys. But those are the kind of things. As you have more staff people, and they do, I, I you look at their coaching roster, and it's about twice as many as I had. But the reality is that I, I liked Coach Lorig's drills. Um, I think all these guys are competent coaches. The interesting thing is what they show on film. I want to see next year's cut-ups from the Oregon Ducks and see how well that translated or transferred. Uh, one of my, I guess, maybe big takeaways so far is that, that most folks that interact with, with Coach Lanning uh, really feel kind of like this strong pull to him because of the, just kind of his genuine nature, just is, is upbeat and it, it feels – you know, I guess kind of real, if you will. And and I know that, you know, Mario Cristobal presented some of those same qualities as well. But 
what was maybe kind of your sense of of just kind of you know being around Coach Landing and watching him interact with other other coaches and other people uh, at the clinic? I would agree. The word you use, genuine, is the way I would describe Dan Landing. He comes across that way. I think he loves the game of football. I think he loves to recruit. He enjoys recruiting. He enjoys the challenge of it. I think he's put together a staff that is going to follow in his footsteps in terms of understanding that recruiting is the lifeblood of college athletics, and it's got to be the number one priority that you have every day. And then uh, you've got to develop, you've got to evaluate, you've got to recruit, and then you've got to develop. And all parts are equally as important to the success of a team. And I, I like Dan. I see him interact with other people. I've, I've had a chance to talk to him on the phone, to trade emails or text messages, and then to see him in person several times now. I like what I see. He hasn't won a game yet, and so I, I'm not going to go overboard. But I think he has the right stuff. I think he's looking at doing things on both sides of the ball, offense and defense, that will create problems for the teams that they play he's recruiting well i think he just secured at least at this point the number one class for 2022 um and that's that's awesome that's how you win and the fact that there's been uh, a changeover in some coaching staffs within the pac-12 and everybody thought well what's going to happen to oregon because they lost a great recruiter in mario cristobal well i think they've they've matched that with dan landing at least so far now Time will tell because you got to do it every single year, every single day. And then whether or not he's ready to coach in those situations. You know, he hasn't been a head coach before. And a lot of times you find out more about yourself as a head coach because uh, when you're an assistant coach, you make suggestions. Uh, when you're a head coach, you make decisions. So decisions carry a lot more weight and are more long-lasting. I'm curious, you mentioned a couple times, you know, he's never been a head coach before, and I agree with you. I think that that's really the, the big question mark we all have right now. Um, you once had to be a first-time head coach, and I'm curious, with your experience in mind, what do you think will be the toughest adjustment for him? I think the toughest adjustment will be organizing his time and trying to figure out where he's going to spend time in the meetings between offense, defense, and special teams, how he's going to handle recruiting, how he's going to handle disciplinary measures, how he's going to handle the media, how he's going to handle boosters. What you find is when you were an assistant coach or a coordinator, you, you're really in utopia because you didn't have to worry about a lot of the outside noise, the other things going on. Right. You could just focus on the game plan and your players, and it really was – much more enjoyable overall much more enjoyable to be an offensive coordinator where you're in control or a defensive coordinator let's say and you control your little fiefdom and you have your guys and that type of thing all of a sudden now as a head coach you have to decide a priority of where you need to be spending your focus your time and that it, it takes a while to get in rhythm i always said it took about two years to figure out something if you'd made the right decision the wrong decision because the first year doing it, it's just all new and you don't know. Mm -hmm. The second year, you know. You know what I did right and wrong last year. Now I can focus Now I, and, and get my staff focused on what I want or what I believe to be important. And with a new, uh, a new staff and new players, because basically he didn't have any of these guys last year unless somebody transferred in from Georgia, which I don't know. Maybe they did. But he has got to impart his belief system uh his culture all of those things that mario talked every coach talks about it but it's so important but you also have to figure out what am i going to do to tweak what i really want to do on defense or want to do on offense to make this group of players successful and that's the key every year you have to evolve just a little bit because your players change the grouping the the skill set of the key athletes uh, or the, the strengths of the team change. So you've got to play to that in order to maximize success. And uh, that actually segues right into something perfect for me, Coach. And uh, I do believe, as my memory would recall, you have a pretty good eye for offensive coordinator talent. Uh, Kenny Dillingham, very young OC, I think 31 years old. 
uh, almost uh, baby-faced, if you will, makes all of us look really old. Um, <laughs> you were able to watch him a little bit. I'm sure he didn't get too far into the X's and O's, but you know, what was maybe just kind of your initial impression from from hearing him talk and and uh, you know maybe some of the offensive philosophies he wants to run at Oregon. Well, I, you know, uh, I've read some things. He's been involved in offenses where other people basically called the plays, like the head coaches called the plays, or they were offensive guru-type guys. And so it's going to be interesting to see his take on what he does. I know what he wants to do. I know he talks about being up-tempo, being a good running team, and yet and a lot of big plays. Um, so... You know, Time of possession really doesn't matter. Uh, it's scoring. It's converting third downs. But it's more, even more than that, it's just scoring touchdowns and scoring points. And and the more big plays you have, the more opportunity to score touchdowns. So I like what he's saying from a philosophical standpoint. I've still yet to see the team practice. So I can't really tell you, you know, are they going warp speed? Are they doing a check with me system? And I think he's trying to look at a combination of all that. And when you when you start when you start fresh when you, it's your system, you know what you have to come to grips with. When I went from UC Davis, I where I was the head JV coach and I was my own offensive coordinator, quarterback coach. I called the plays. And I went to Cal State Hayward, a, an opponent in the same league, as their offensive coordinator. They asked me, "Well, what do you believe in?" And I said. Well, at Davis, we did this and that. And they said, stop, stop. No, 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 no. What do you believe in? We don't care what you did at Davis. Right. You're, you're, you're our guy now. You're at Hayward. So what do you want to do? I said, oh, okay, well, here's what I think I really believe in. But he's going to find out. I'm, I'm sure he has some ideas. He has a framework. He has a, a system in mind. But ultimately, it's does he have the players to do that? Can he teach it? Can his assistants, are they all going to be on the same page? So there's a huge learning curve uh, when you are the guy for the first time and you're you're making up your own terminology or something that can help everybody understand. And I always said, I wanted some logical sequence in my terminology. And it changed three or four times over the course of my career to make my players feel more comfortable in that system. So I, I think Kenny will be a, a microcosm of Dan Lanning in a sense. He's young. He hasn't done this before. He's got ideas and he's got experience under some great leaders or great tutors. And hopefully uh, he's the kind of guy that can put it all together. Uh, maybe my last question, I think, Coach, before we send you off is uh, on the opposite side of the ball there. Um, we know that Dan Lanning is obviously going to be very much involved with the defense. That's his DNA, uh, just as Mario was with the offensive line group when he was at Oregon. Uh, but you did get a chance to hear Tosh Lupoy, uh talk ball a little bit. Um, if I I want to I want to say that you might have even coached against him. I think when he was at Cal, I think there was an overlap for a year or two. But I probably should have researched that. Um, your initial impressions of him and and just kind of his presentation and and uh, I guess ultimately having him at Oregon. Uh, I I did get to coach against him. Uh, I have his relationship with me goes way back because I went to high school with his dad or his uncle. I'm not sure which. And uh, so we've talked a little bit about that, but uh, he's got great energy and he understands defenses. And he, he, he put on a tape of basically a pro game uh, where he was a D line coach, I believe, and talked about what they did. And it was very impressive, although uh, at the pro level. And so, one of the things that I'm going to come back to is, you know, they're not working with pro athletes. Two of the coaches, uh, Tosh Lupoy and Adrian Clem, have been at the professional level for a couple of years. And so they're working at the next level thing where you've got uh, very motivated kids and everybody knows what, not kids, they're not kids anymore, they're men. Uh, and they're paid to do their job. And it's a complex, very complex system. Uh, yeah, he did. He did one presentation about a particular blitz that they could do against this and that, and they could morph from this to this to this. And it was more than uh, some people would put in an entire season, but it was one blitz. And 
and with one word you can change this guy's job or one another would change this guy's job and i thought wow that's really cool and i see that from my standpoint he's got to make sure that he's ready now to uh, not dumb it down but really make the players he's going to have at oregon and without a star like thibodeau from last year and i think they have some depth and some balance in that front seven and obviously if uh, Flo can come back healthy along with Sewell uh, and Funa. I mean, they're they're a good linebacking core, and they've got athletes in the front seven, but they need to be better than they were last year at the line of scrimmage. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, just the – you always have the want-to-dos, the need-to-dos, and then what can we do? Uh, you know, what are, is going to make this group uh, successful? And ultimately, it may not be quite what they want that first year, or it may be. Maybe they'll be able to outcoach people, and you know, with alignments and shifts and motions. Uh, I mean, uh, they stem uh, on defense. Uh, they're talking a lot about a lot of those things, but they just have to be able to line up and play off a block to start with. And sometimes you got to go back to square one. So I, I think Tosh Lupoy has the energy. I loved his energy. Uh, he would fire me up if I was a defensive player. I think he's got the knowledge. There's no question. Now it's just how does it all mesh? And he's got a whole new staff for him to work with, too. He's got to integrate everybody onto the same page for what they're doing defensively because everybody has to know what to do, and they have to be able to do it full speed. So you don't want a lot of thinking. You don't want people to have to sit there and try to process what's happening. They've got to react. And so the simpler you can make it on defense, I'm a huge proponent of that. Uh, Coach, I want to ask you one final question, and it's not necessarily related to, um, you know, your time at Oregon. And, and you might not be able to answer it very well. I don't know, but I'm going to ask anyways. Uh, the new thing in football right now is is NIL and its introduction into recruiting. And from what you've seen, you know, at your current perch, how do you think that's affecting college football? And, and, and I guess maybe do you like it in its current format? No, I don't like it. I think I'm very concerned that it's going to destroy the fabric of college football, which has been team and commitment and unity. I think between the portal uh, and the NIL, and some kids will just dip their toe in the portal to find out what I might get in an NIL agreement somewhere. Uh, the other problem that I see with that is that there's no control. There's no overall umbrella saying, okay, here's what you can and can't do. It's all run by the states. Each state is different. Some leagues contain five or six states or more, and the NC2A has no power. There's no umbrella or oversight from the federal government. And as such, it is truly, some coaches call it the wild, wild west. It is. And I think it's, unfortunately, it's going to rear its head sometimes we haven't seen it yet or we may have already but you know if, a, if some kid is young man is getting 500,000 or 750,000 or 800,000 dollars you know to play football this year for a particular school and the people that are blocking for him or playing next to him are getting nothing or five or ten thousand dollars that inequity at some point is going to show up and, and it's going to destroy the fabric of the team I also think that the portal and the extensive use of the portal where I, I there's no question some people need to transfer to find the best place to play for them but I think what we're doing is making it too easy and kids have no commitment sense anymore they're not going to work on their weaknesses they're just going to try to go somewhere where they can play and I I'm in agreement with that I think everybody should play it's no fun sitting on the bench watching other people play I was told kids when you come to Oregon I want you to be able to get your uniform dirty. I want people clapping for you, not you standing on the sidelines clapping for somebody else. And I think most kids got that. So I'm, I think that the players getting paid, I, I'm fine with that. I agree with that. A college, edu, a college education, a full scholarship now includes a lot of stuff. It includes the ability to pay for your way back and forth, all summer school, meals, massages, uh, first-class travel. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. And in addition to that, now some kids are going to get even more money, and I think it's going to destroy the concept of team. And between the portal and the NIL, I just think the game is going to change dramatically, and there's no control over where it goes or who does it. 
So I'm going to, I'm going to piggyback and I know I told you I'd let you go, but you did. I'm going to be honest. I don't know if you've ever listened to the podcast when you weren't on it, but you and I <laughs> have almost the exact same view on this. I mean, we, you, I was like listening to myself there for a little bit, uh, piggybacking on that. How do you feel that Oregon, and this isn't specific to coach landing and his philosophy, but how do you feel that Oregon factors into the game of NIL with some of these heavyweights like Texas A&M, Tennessee, Texas, some of these that have just absolutely mammoth resources. How do you feel that Oregon uh, factors in there? I mean, we know that, you know, Phil Knight's around and, and Pat Kilkenny and those guys are very generous. And But, I mean, how do you think Oregon, you know, can can kind of stay competitive with, that, with those schools? Well, I think they are competing fairly well. I, Division Street, the, the thing that they put together is a vehicle for athletes to explore their opportunities and expand their opportunities uh, in the in the NIL realm or region. I think they're also doing some things to educate uh, players on campus uh, to what they can do. And I, I don't know what's legal and what's not anymore, but supposedly the coaches aren't involved with it, but certainly there has to be some information given because as athletes now are getting paid, they're going to get taxed on that money. And, and if they don't uh, have adequate supervision or uh, guidance, they're going to end up saying, I, I, you owe ten dollars or $15,000. Well, I don't have it. I spent that or I did this. Well, no, you got to pay the government. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And I think Oregon, because of Phil Knight and because of the other people that you just mentioned, is always going to be competitive in a situation like that. Um, now, do you, do you feel like you want to buy your athletes? I, I don't know. I, that, that just sounds not quite correct to me. Uh, and people are coming out, and I guess it's, it's the American way. It's capitalism, which I understand. But to me, it was all about playing football and being part of a team and having your success would be acknowledged by others. And now, you know, kids can make money doing it. And I think that's absolutely fine. And I wish there was a way to share that with everybody or not put a cap on it, but just try to somehow make it more fair. Because what we're going to end up with is, once again, a super conference of 25 to 30 uh, universities that can afford to have uh, their own Division Street, their own NIL branch, and the monies from their boosters will trump everything else. But it's going to leave a lot of the universities that play football uh, and the players that go to those schools, you know, on the on the outside looking in. Well, Coach, uh, we, you know, again, I speak. I know I speak for Matt and myself. We really appreciate you coming on and have a great deal of respect for you and, and the way you view things. And um, it's really, actually, I know we didn't talk about it, but it was really refreshing to hear kind of your take on NIL and. Kind of the current landscape of college football so um we'd love to have you on again will you uh will you be up in eugene for the spring game coach or uh i'm not sure we're we're working on that and it's a possibility uh it's sort of up in the air at this point you know let me say one other thing this is, i'll be you know brief i started i played in a non-scholarship program at uc davis i coached for 15 years in a non-scholarship league uh and Eventually, it became partial scholarship, but the reality was that we played football because we truly loved the game, and we loved our teammates, and we loved the experience, and it made us who we were. I'm not sure that's happening now, and not that it's wrong. It's just it's a different mentality about why you're playing the game of football. It, it uh, It's starting to feel a little bit more like the NFL and a little bit less like college football unfortunately <laughs> yeah it is it's it's semi-pros it's the it's the feeder leagues now for the nfl and and the good players there's no question they're looking at how can i get to the nfl and that's there's no question about it that's absolutely uh what their goal is and most of the people who sign division one scholarships have that as their end game and i understand that it's just that a lot of times it's it's less about the team and the experience and more about what's in it for me and i i have no issue with that because it's a it's a way to change their lives and change their families lives and generational money and so uh it is good. and and there's a lot of risk involved with college football so 
kids should be rewarded for putting their bodies on the line. Well, I think I think you're saying something I've said before. I have no problem with NIL. I have no problem with kids profiting, you know, off their likeness. I, my particular stance, which it sounds like is similar to yours, is I just don't like NIL in its current form. It's largely unregulated. It's like you said, it's the wild, wild west. If parameters were put in place and everybody was maybe kind of playing by the, the same game there, I, I could see the benefits. But right now, like you have said and I've said before, I think it's very dangerous in its current form. I, I agree completely with how you said that. Well, I, I love I love to know that it's validated by the by the goat uh, Mike Bellotti itself. But uh, <laughs> coach, we appreciate you. We'd love to see it at the spring game if it works. Uh, it's currently snowing outside my window, so you might want to bring your snowshoes if you come for it. But <laughs> yeah, go figure. It was it was sunny on Friday, and it's it's snowing today. But uh, uh, Coach, again, we appreciate your time and we want to let you go, and we would love to have you on again. Okay, guys. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. You know, Justin, you came prepared. You had some questions. I came prepared, and I had some questions, but I learned a lesson early in this podcast that when we have a guest like Mike Bellotti, or you have a Mario Cristobal, or you have a Kelly Graves, or... I think about when we had Shea Serrano that one time, too. He kind of fits that bill as well. When you have someone so insightful that you can learn so much from, I learn to just shut up and let them talk. So as a fan, as somebody who grew up with his teams, whenever we've had Mike Bellotti, I love just being able to, to sit back. Maybe I ask him a question or two. Maybe you ask him a couple more. And I just sit back and listen. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, no, I, I I loved, you know, the things that he talked about with Coach Lanning and, and, and the coaches that he was able to see on Friday uh, at the coaches clinic in Eugene. But, you know, obviously we kind of segued that into NIL, which I wasn't planning on doing at all. Right. But I, I feel like, you know, that might have even been the best part of the conversation. I don't know. It was all pretty good. But just kind of hearing his thoughts as somebody that's come up in a completely different time of college football totally understands recruiting totally understands how you run you know a major college football organization and to hear you know kind of his thoughts on the way that it's changed and been impacted uh yeah again i mean it's tough to have a bad interview with coach Bellotti, but um yeah that was definitely another gem that yeah. uh, we were we were fortunate to have oh yeah and on the nil side i know you strongly agree with them i think a lot of fans agree with him to an extent and I'll offer this, that I, I agree there is a change, but I don't think it's necessarily a, a change for the bad with with players getting paid and players having the freedom to transfer. Um, but I, I do recognize here's someone who, who was a coach in an era where money wasn't as big of a factor, and I, I think he speaks to something you still see at the lower levels of college football – you'll never see again at the higher levels of college football and that is it used to be about the game and now it's about so much more yeah it's it's definitely about more and it's definitely uh changing the game um and it was nice to i mean for me i've i've been pretty steadfast on my position on this i i I think nil could be great for you know the high school and college athletes I just think in its current form, it's really, really bad for college football. And it was it was nice to kind of have that validated by Coach Bellotti, who has said a lot of the same things. I've said from day one, I haven't really changed my tune. Um, it seems to me more and more as we've progressed through this, that more and more fans who were originally like, oh, this is great, players should get played, blah, blah, blah. Now everybody's kind of like, oh, wait, maybe this hasn't turned out to be the best thing for college football. And, um, I, I guess maybe my biggest hope or, or a lot of folks biggest hope is that there is some regulation put in place and that it does maybe end up getting a little bit more organized um, and maybe unified so that I think everybody's playing equally because right now it's kind of like Major League Baseball where the Yankees or Dodgers or whoever can just buy you know their their winning team every year and right. I and I, I, I feel as though long-term for college football, that's a really, really bad thing. But, uh, I mean, 
who knows none of us have a crystal ball so i guess we're we're all just guessing um like everybody else <laughs> we, we we don't have a crystal ball but we do have another guest he he joined in at the tail end of that interview and he's been waiting patiently waiting for his turn so let's make it his turn scoop duck beat reporter jared denny checking in with an update on oregon football hey how are you guys doing well Perfect. man i mean Anytime, for that, right? <laughs> anytime you get to speak to Mike Bellotti, it's a good day. Yeah, man, that that's so cool. It, it was, I mean, man, that's coming in probably the last five minutes of that. And it was it's just so cool to listen. I mean, it's, so, it's just, I mean, like you guys were saying, it's just so much knowledge, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to firing it up and listening to the whole interview. Well, yeah, hopefully later today. But um, we're we're equally excited to have you, Jared, because uh, although Mike has a different knowledge than you, you've been able to you know, get to practices and, and kind of get, you know, into the media. And I know, I know that practices are only open for 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever they are, but what are maybe some of the things that you've kind of picked up on from this team, from talking to the coaches, um, you know, in the past week, what, you know, where do they seem to be making progress and, and where do they seem to be the most concerned from what you can tell? I guess we'll start with the concern and I think it's just and, and this is by no fault of the coaches obviously but it's just the depth along kind of the offensive and defensive line right now there's just so many guys dinged up that I think it's just a little bit hard to know what they have in the fold when you have Keon Ware Huds and Brandon Dorless and Popo they're all dinged up right now so you're you're looking at essentially you're starting interior defensive line it's just there just aren't a ton of bodies to go around at the moment and um, it's like Justin I know you wrote the other day that there's a lot of guys that are just trying to get right, get healthy, and there were so many guys dinged up at the end of last season that I, I really sort of appreciate the I don't want to call it cautious, but um, really kind of player first approach that they're taking and letting some of those guys get the, the rest and the recovery that they need. I mean, we talked to Alex Forsythe the other day, and I know some people were freaking out that he missed the first what three or four practices and wondering kind of what his status was, and he said like he's fine in the grand scheme of things, but he was just so dinged up at the end of last year and his. Um, that back tightness gave him so many issues throughout the year that they just want him to get right and make sure he's healthy in the long run. And I don't know if that's necessarily something that was happening in the past. And I just, I think it's a refreshing approach um, to, to see um, Coach Landing and kind of that staff um, just making sure that all their guys are getting right and kind of understanding that you don't need to grind guys into dust during spring ball. Um, and it, there's sort of um, obviously bigger battles down the road. Yeah. Re- refreshing is a word you tossed out there. I, I, I'm assuming you think this is an improvement over years past. I think it is. I, I, I mean, I'm definitely not the first person to mention how kind of just the morale of the team seemed really down last year, and there were so many guys dinged up, and uh, I can't necessarily speak to why that is. Or, I mean, it's football injuries happen, right? But it, it just seems like there were so many guys that weren't um, kind of able to play the potential you would want them to because they're just dealing with these nagging injuries and um i mean by the time the utah game in salt lake rolled around it was like a mash unit right um just even just talking with alex the other day i mean i I wrote this in a story today he said he's doing pilates and like doing all this extra stretching stuff and just really focusing on mobility and it it seems like i mean i haven't heard anybody else mention that but it just seems like there's a real like kind of um health first like get everybody right approach to this which it personally i think is really the best thing you can do during spring ball because while it's important and obviously right. you have a, a new offensive staff new defensive staff trying to implement your schemes you, you got to make sure your guys are okay for week one yeah well i i think back to something coach Bellotti kept saying with us because we'd ask him you know what do you think about dan lanning what do you think about tosh lupoy and he kept saying well they haven't won a game yet right like the spring game is important but everybody wins the spring game and and they're going to be Zero zero until September when the real games happen. So I, I agree with you. Yeah, in, in terms of areas of improvement, I know everybody wants to know about the quarterbacks and is so curious about who's leading that race, whether it's Ty Thompson or Bo Nix or even Jay Butterfield. And we're just, for anybody who's kind of read the stuff that I've been writing or the other beat writers have been writing or listened to an interview with uh, Coach Lanning or Kenny Dillingham, that they're not going to. They're just not going to tip their hand at this point, and they have no reason to. And they really, really right. want to get a good, good look at all three of these guys and give everybody a chance to compete. Which, again, is sort of, uh, I think, the best approach you can take. That, in my opinion, you have three really talented um, quarterbacks in that room who are all sort of unique in their own skill sets and can, can bring you um, a variety of um, different things. And I'm, I, my only regret is that we don't get to see more of them. <laughs> I get to see 
maybe five or ten minutes of them throwing every day and a little bit of 11 on 11 stuff and it, it's been somewhat limited but all three of those guys just seem really upbeat and confident right now which is really all you can ask for at this point um yeah no i agree and and something i know i've posted on the site is there's there's literally absolutely zero reason or upside for them to announce a starter or a depth chart at that position because something that coach Pilati talked about with the uh, the transfer portal uh, i think oregon has good depth at the quarterback position probably the best depth that they've had and, and i'm saying depth not you know pure starter but uh and there's no reason to chase them off right now i think uh perhaps usc might have the best starter in the pac 12 but their depth is in serious trouble there they if, if if caleb williams goes down you know they're in pretty substantial trouble so i think as far as oregon's concerned hey let's try and keep these guys around make this a real competition um and then in the fall you know you're able to kind of maybe let one guy gear ahead of the others i think the other position that i'm most interested in personally um would be the running back group and i don't know what you've maybe been able to pick up with that room and just kind of what they're doing and and who's making impressions um what are you kind of hearing there jared yeah it seems like every time i write about kind of first and second unit rotation guys i I have to add this caveat that i mean coach laning and coach dillingham have said multiple times like there there is no concrete set in stone first or second unit yet and they want to rotate and swap as many guys with ty and Bo and Jay as they can to get them different looks and get them comfortable with all the skill position guys. But uh, with all that being said, I want to keep putting kind of like these guards on, but Sean Dollars is running with the ones the other day um, during a section of practice that we saw, and he just looked really, really explosive and really sharp and looked um, like kind of the running back that I think everybody was envisioning when he came before the injuries um, started to hit. And I think there's just a really, really good player in there, and it's it's hard for some fans to I, I think remember how exciting he was when he first got to Eugene and how much hype there was around him but I'm as we're approaching the spring game like that's the guy I want to watch like he's just electric man and I know that Byron Cardwell had a great year last year and I think that's if you can keep both those guys healthy and you know mix Noah and a couple other guys in there it's going to be a really really exciting running back room yeah, you mentioned the depth there and, and some of the studs on defense but also that quarterback battle or or i i kind of air quote it because we want to use that word but it's so early you know um ty thompson bo nix i i like that competition but i also wonder when when robbie ashford is named the mvp of auburn's spring game yesterday uh, are, are the guys competing right now for that oregon job the best possible guys competing for that Oregon job? Do you, do you feel like there's enough talent in that room? I think there's more than enough talent, and I think Justin made a really good point. I know like what you wrote the other day that um, the, the depth is really good. It's like you just said, it's, it might be the, the deepest quarterback room in the Pac-12. I mean, how many other programs have a guy like Jay Butterfield, a former four-star guy with a really, really talented arm and just kind of his pedigree, I, I mean, is sort of at this point your de facto third-string quarterback. Like, I, I don't think anybody does, right? Um and the fact that you have that guy still competing in the mix, and then I mean, Ty Thompson speaks for himself, but Bo Nix is a, a proven SEC starter. Uh, whatever your feelings on him are, like he's gotten it done at the highest level. Um, I I liked Robbie Ashford's game a lot. Um, I you know that I love a good two sport athlete, Matt, and I, right. I love watching him play baseball. But me, me um, too, yeah. And, and I said this when he left, like it, I really hope he goes on and uh, succeeds at Auburn and does really well because I think there's a really, really good football player in there and he's just so electric and so fun to watch and to, to see him kind of get the accolades over the weekend. At the Auburn spring game is really cool, but I, I sort of I really do like the group that Oregon has here and it, it would be fun to have Robbie in that mix, but it, I think that there's no kind of shortage of talent in this um, Oregon quarterback room as it currently is. Yeah, I think... Uh... I mean, I, I'm glad to see Robbie have the success. You know, I was always high on his upside as well. You know, I, I think he did himself just a tiny bit of a disservice, you know, doing both baseball and football in the spring early in his career. I think that might have, you know, maybe pushed him down uh, the chart a little bit more potentially. But um, I think we're being, and, I, and we're, I say, probably mostly fans, being pretty unrealistic to expect that all four of those guys would have remained at Oregon all spring. Uh, I I think you were going to end up with two or three guys at some point. So whether it's 
now or two months ago or you know maybe you wish Robbie Ashford I don't know which person fans wished would have left because it's really tough to say oh I, I wish Ty would have left or or Jay would have left and we could you know I mean that's you're kind of splitting hairs at that point in my opinion I think all three are good quarterbacks but um I, I again I I think you know it's very unrealistic to think that that uh Robbie Ashford would have stayed and you would have kept all four quarterbacks all the way through this year. So I, I think it was just kind of a matter of, you know, when it was going to happen. Um, you know, kind of moving along, I think a lot of fans seem to kind of get this uh, just kind of angst or, or, or curiosity about Tosh Lupoy. I know that media was able to catch up with him, I think, I believe, for the first time last year. Uh, what was maybe just kind of some of your impressions from, you know, being there front and center and watching him and hearing him talk and, and just, uh, you know, kind of taking that one in? Yeah, my main, I, my main impression was he's, he's just the real deal, man. Like, I, I try not to base um, too much off of, you know, a 10-minute interview in a scrum where um, you don't necessarily get to ask a million questions to somebody. But he he's just so... Um, you can just tell how much he loves and lives and breathes football. And that's, I mean, I mean, that's his life. It's the same thing with coach Lanning. Like the, these guys are just such football junkies and you can like sort of feel it with every word that they say. And um, there's a lot of coaches in college football that are like that, obviously, but this just feels different. And I'm having a hard time kind of articulating why that is, but they, they're just good, man. You can tell these players are really buying in right now. Every time I ask somebody about Taj, like you can see their eyes just kind of, widen a little bit with like how excited they are to be working with him every day it's it's a different kind of vibe for sure and I'm, not, I'm not doing a very good job explaining it but um he's just really really um straightforward and it's a very business-like approach and it just seems like everything's a little more organized than it was at this time last year well that's i guess that's certainly refreshing what's uh let's send you out on this note for you for you personally not so much what the coaches have conveyed what might be your biggest question mark that maybe hasn't been answered uh this spring so far i sort of want to see how this wide receiver room arranges itself it, i mean obviously with troy and dante and seven moving into the slot chris hudson's back but there's just so many talented guys um kind of with isaiah brevard and um some of those guys who i think have gotten forgotten a little bit and these are four high three-star kids who are really talented really unique athletes and I think it's easy to um, kind of fall in love with those those first kind of three or four guys, but I'm really curious to see how some of these guys perform in more eleven on eleven on eleven situations and spring game type scenarios. We're recording this on a Monday, so I guess just real quick as we send you off uh, for the for the folks listening, standard schedule for this week: Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday for practices. Yeah, I believe so. I'm actually waiting for that to come to my inbox and had the same question, but until I hear otherwise, <laughs> I, think, I think that's the deal. I love how that works. Out. Yeah. Well, and I, I just asked that. That way fans know what, you know, what to look for, what days, and, and right. you know, kind of what to expect. Just kind of like the same as, you know, we try and figure out what to expect. Um, I, I don't know that I have any more questions. I would say that we could dip into basketball, but that could take us a whole nother direction for a, a while um so maybe how about this jared any umbrella thoughts on men's or women's basketball at this point obviously women have had a lot of turnover there but uh, i don't know if you feel the same way but you know i've just continued to say trust kelly graves and i have no reason not to um and in terms of the men obviously they're adding some some commitments and good pieces it's pretty exciting there as well your thoughts yeah, I, I know I got on my soapbox last time kind of about Kelly Graves in the program, and um, I, I have the same stance as you, just in, trust Kelly and, until proven otherwise. it's um, He's had incredible success. He recruits as well as anybody in the country, and I know a lot of people are panicking about the departures. Like, look around the Pac-12, man. Everybody's losing their players. OSU just lost two five-stars, and I think another really good kid. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, Ty Hansen just transferred into Oregon from Arizona State. I, I remember watching her play and noticing just how good of an on-ball defender and how she's just a hooper man like they had a really good player there and I, I know that they've lost some really good players they lost maddie share they lost sydney Parrish. but um and justin i know you've kind of written about this ad nauseum like it's going to happen especially um, in this basketball landscape in the transfer portal era like kids are going to leave and you're going to have to go out and kind of have essentially a second recruiting cycle and that's what kelly's doing right now and they have the number two class in the country coming in and there were always going to need to be some departures. And he's already plugged one of those holes they're bringing in Hanson. And I, I just think it's everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's all unanimous there. 
Yeah, I think uh, well, I think there was one of the Scoop Duck people that posted. I think uh, uh, most of your major teams are averaging like three point four transfers. It was something like that number, you know, uh, uh, per team. Good you know Lord. what I mean? So like, it just means that that level of attrition, which Oregon is at as well, seems to almost be the norm in major college basketball. I think uh, I don't think it applies to everybody. You know, if you're a team that's not necessarily um, you know, super competitive, but for a team like Oregon or UConn or uh, Baylor or some of the, you know, upper end women's teams, it seems to be that that's, um, you know, somewhat expected. You're going to recruit at a high level, bring those girls in. And if some of them just aren't quite fitting or working out or, or, or developing or whatever, uh, you know, they're going to naturally move themselves somewhere else that they're maybe a little more comfortable. And if you're Kelly Graves, you're just going to go find another five-star because that's what he does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, kids kids want to play in Eugene too. Like, I think that's something that people forget. Like, this is a great place to play basketball, and um, this women's team draws as well as any women's team does in the country uh, when things are clicking well. Um, I, I just think I, I'm personally lo- really looking forward to watching this team next year, just with the class they have coming in. I, I think I'm maybe um, zagging where a lot of people are zigging, and, and like, this is exciting. Like, this team's going to be really cool and really good to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, uh, like you said, the transfer from ASU, I think she's going to be, I think she, I think she, a lot of people are like, well, this one doesn't make sense. It's like, no, I think Kelly Graves recognized that, you know, he's looking for a little bit more of a defensive presence there and not necessarily somebody that's commanding the ball offensively. Cause I think there's plenty of that in Eugene already. So it seems as though it was a really good compliment to what he already had at Oregon. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Hey, Jared, before we let you go, can I can I ask you how much duck baseball have you watched this spring? It's been a it's been a little less than it was at the start of the season just because of the spring football on Saturdays and I haven't been as dialed as in as I would like. But man, this team can really hit. Like, yeah. <laughs> I know I know the UCLA series is kind of a bummer, but holy smokes, if they can just get a couple of those arms healthy and um, figure out just a little bit on the pitching side of things, like they're going to be a really. I, I was talking to somebody about that this morning. They're going to be really really dangerous at the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. You know, it's it's rare. We we talked about this last year with Waz too, but it it still feels weird to see an Oregon team with power, and they have power. You remember you remember the good old small ball days, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was just a few years back that I just oh. remembered working at the Daily Emerald, sitting in that press box, and it's like, all right, another one out sack bunt. Let's do it again. Right, <laughs> right. Oh, oh, the bunt. Hey, uh, and then and then real quick, I I know you know. Anytime I get a former MLB guy on here, I gotta ask. I I don't know if I I know this question, but do you have a favorite MLB team? Oh, uh, you guys are gonna boo me off the podcast. I grew up a Yankees fan. Oh, <laughs> oh, good lord! No, I I didn't see that coming from a mile away. Know, wow, it's fair. It's, it's fair wow. My dad is a diehard Yankees fan, and I I got um, kind of clung on to that fandom early. And um, there, there's been times where it's a little hard for me to yeah. stick around, which is some some of the the money type things. But it, they two two they took two from the Red Sox in the opening weekend. Like I can't complain about that, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, and and I I will say in your defense, you know, somebody our age, it's um it's not like they win every year anymore. Oh man, <laughs> who's your team, Matt? Uh, I'm a, I'm a well. This is sad. So I grew up an A's fan, right? Moneyball era was when I was a little kid, and you know, Oakland Raider fan. I had to root for the team that shared the stadium. So I uh, was a huge A's fan, and then they sucked. <laughs> you know, everybody gets uh, uh, goes elsewhere, goes to the Giants, wins World Series, like Barry Zito, or uh, or or. Uh, Miguel Tejada, everybody leaves, and I took a long hiatus from baseball, and then when my wife and I got together, I became a Padres fan, because she's a diehard Padres fan, and her family are diehard Padres fans, so if I had to pick, gun to my head, I'm a Padres fan, um, but we still don't win, so, you know, <laughs> it, it's it's misery for me. Oh, they're fun to watch right now, man, I love that for you. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Justin? Who, who did you did you watch any of these games opening week? I could frankly give a shit about baseball, to be honest <laughs> with you. But yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't it doesn't move the needle for me at all. Uh, Kim is a Kim is a Dodgers fan. Has been a Dodgers fan. She grew up a Dodgers fan with her dad. So that one's on the uh, 
<clears throat> that one's on the short-term bucket list, I think, for us to get down there and, and, and take in a game, Most, mostly for her. I'll have a hot dog and a beer, so I'm good with yeah. it. But, uh, yeah, otherwise, I, you know what? I, prob- I will not see a complete baseball game before the World Series, and I'll probably only watch, like, one of those. Well, at least you watch the World Series. Uh, well, I mean, I, I will because nothing else is on, but I won't, like, go out of my oh. way to make sure I schedule being home for the World Series. Like, if I'm at the bar and it's on TV, I will watch it. That's my interest level in it. <laughs> so, hey, I, know that you, I know you can appreciate the fact that baseball is the superior uh, sport being experienced to drink a beer at. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll die on that hill. Oh, yeah. No, you can't beat that, man. I mean, easy for me to say. I went to, went to Petco on my honeymoon, and, uh, like, they have, uh, you know, the Ballast Point Brewery is right down the street, and they do a bunch of stuff with Ballast Point. So, oh, man, that's one of the best nights of my year. Just- I, will, I will say live baseball games are a ton of fun. I will, I will go with that. Live baseball games, I have nothing but respect for that. But watching it on TV, forget it. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. I've been to the Giant Giant Stadium quite a few times, and that's a great little stadium. I love it. I've been to Petco Park, been up to the Mariners. I've I've seen some ballparks. Obviously, I haven't been to all of them, like Marshall Malco, but uh, you know, <laughs> I've seen I've seen a few, and I will attest that yes, watching a baseball game live in person is a lot of fun if it's not rainy. Okay. Well, uh, well. Wait. On that note, though, I did add I, recently. I don't know if you guys saw this. I did add going to watch the Savannah Bananas uh, on my bucket list. So yeah. I'm definitely going to have to go watch that. Yeah, that's awesome. And and that's a good one. Like the world's most famous college summer baseball team. Uh, so the three of us are are having our conversation. I have to admit, guys, the program I use to record this is about to boot us off. So we should probably close the podcast soon. <laughs> that seems like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, appreciate you guys again. All right. Thanks, Jared. Love talking to you, man. Okay. Well, uh, that was Jared Denny. We spoke with him. We spoke with Mike Bellotti. Always love getting to do that. And we wrap up Matt Bagley and Justin Hopkins. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank everybody for their support of this podcast over the years and just uh, say uh, have a great day and go, Ducks.